Hello, and welcome to PW's LitCast, a podcast from Publishers Weekly. In each episode, we speak with authors of both fiction and nonfiction books. I'm Lenny Picker, and today I'm speaking with reporter and author Humphrey Hawksley, whose political thriller, Ice Islands, is being published by Severn House, the sponsor of today's podcast. Good afternoon, Humphrey. Hi, Lenny. Very good to talk to you. Would you start us off with an excerpt from your book? Yes, of course. I, I, you asked me that, and I thought I'd do, do the, the beginning, the start of the book, so I'll, I'll read that uh, for a couple of minutes. Uh, the, it's, this is the prologue, and it's, it's got a catch line based in Tokyo. And here we go. She was out, clear of the death house. She had to get away completely, long distance, free from dread, free from guilt, from paralyzing fear, an airport, another country. Sarah Cato rode in the back of one of the family sedans, her brother Michio beside her, window down, city noise in her ears and drizzle splattering on her face. In the bag, strapped around her shoulder, was her passport, credit cards, vaccination certificates, a few hundred euros and her phone from London, which worked in Japan. She still had the American soldier's phone in her jeans pocket. Shibuya's lights shone around her, massive futuristic images of gadgets, celebrities, fashion wrapped around skyscrapers. Umbrellas bobbed up and down as people ducked around each other in the rain. It would be so easy to slip away, vanish in the crowds. Easy, if she did it right. Why don't we walk, she suggested. I need an ATM to get some yen. I only have euros. There you are. Michio peeled off a wad. That'll keep you going. Thank you, but no, Sarah laid a hand on his arm, trying to hide a repulsive shiver on showing any affection. I need to do something normal, be on the street, go to an ATM, get some money, feel people around me, feel cold. After the horror of that stifling house, she made it sound believable. First step out of the car, second step, run as fast as she could. Of course, I wasn't thinking. Michio squeezed her hand and instructed the driver to pull up. We'll get out here. The rain, getting a bit wet, doesn't worry you. Oh, it'll be refreshing. She took her hand off his arm. The driver turned into a narrow road and stopped behind a green taxi. Sarah pulled the handle to open the door. It was locked. All right. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about who Sarah is and who she's in the car with? Yeah, Sarah is, uh, is the, the rejected daughter of Japan's most powerful crime family. And uh, she was, because it was Japan and there was a struggle for the, uh, for the inheritance of the family, she was sent away by her father at the age of 10 to a boarding school in England. Uh, she craves to be loved by her family, but she actually loathes what it all stands for, uh, and the one person that has supported and kept in touch with it is Michio, her older brother. Uh, Michio is destined to be the heir of the family, and uh, and 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 uh, he is a he's a he's a killer. I mean, he he's a he's a mass murderer. And Sarah is the one asset that Ray Kazena, who is the the hero of this uh, series and, and his operation has decided could get them leverage inside the family and to determine what the threat is to America. 
Uh, so rake is uh, sent to the Orland Islands, which is in the Baltic, uh, Baltic Sea between Finland and Sweden, where there's a peace conference going on. And Sarah is one of the delegates at the peace conference. But as rake arrives, uh, one of the other delegates is murdered. And that delegate is discovered to be the secret and illegitimate son of the Russian president. So you have the United States, Japan and Russia uh, all coming into the crosshairs of a confrontation there that has to be unwound. Uh, for, and, and one of the very little known things, one of the reasons I said it in Japan uh, and, and did this, is that the uh, Japan and, and Russia have never actually got a peace treaty. They're still technically at war. They have a ceasefire and there's disputed territory and islands between them. Um, and this is likely to flare up as the Ukraine and the whole Russia thing becomes, uh, uh, be- becomes more of a flashpoint. Uh, and these, these are, it's a little known flashpoint, little known thing, which in a thriller I, I like to sort of describe, uh, describe these and, and bring them in, into more of a public domain. Interestingly, though, having said that, Lenny, the, um, the latest James Bond film, No Time to Die, was actually set in those very islands. Um, as I was writing this, they had obviously filmed it and were editing it on those islands. So... I know that you, you just mentioned that you sort of look for uh, potential world flashpoints that may be, you know, lesser known to the to the general reader. Uh, what led you to use this one at this time for your fourth thriller with Reiko Zena in it? Uh, the, the, the previous thriller I did, A Man on Fire, and these are all standalone thrillers, but there are threads that go through them. I discovered a presidential executive order that dated back to 2011 from the Obama administration that talked about transnational organized crime being a threat to American democracy and and the American economy. And it listed four groups. One was the Russians, not surprising. The other one was the Italian mafia, not surprising. We've had the Godfather and everything. Another one was the Latin, Latin American drug cartel. But the one that did surprise me was a particular Yakuza group, which is Japanese organized crime. And Japan is meant to be the, uh, you know, the great ally of the United States. Um, but they, I sort of said, well, how can Japan be a threat to American democracy? And then strangely, um, when I was launching Man on Fire, um, I sent out a newsletter and an FBI contact um, uh, got hold of me and said, do you want help with your next thriller? And I said, yeah, I'm quite interested in this element. She said, I'll, I'll link you up with somebody. Um, and this was sort of during the COVID thing. So we did a, a, a sort of coded, encrypted thing to get hold of a, a, a special agent that had done this. And I said, as as novelists, you often say this, look, I've got this crazy, wacky idea. Uh, could you tell me what is plausible in it and what isn't? And, um, and I laid out this thing, supposing you have an organized crime element that gets very close to the government and turns that government against the United States. And he said, uh, OK, I get that image. That, that is what I've been trying to get noticed by the American government for the past 20 years of my career. And then he went through it bit by bit with me, telling me nothing classified, but pointing me toward various court cases, hearings, open source stuff that had been written 
uh, about the Yakuza, a Japanese Asian organized crime generally. And that was what gave me that the, the sort of anchored base that as a thriller writer, you, you know, you create scenarios that, you know, that, you know, James Bond type of scenarios that might not be plausible, but you have to you have to base it in some form of of, of credibility. And, and that's that's what I did with Ice Islands. I mean, in addition to being an accomplished novelist, you also are foreign correspondent. I, I don't remember from your history. Were you ever stationed in Japan? I was stationed in Asia. Uh, so I, I reported a lot about and from Japan. Uh, and I was a, the BBC's Asia correspondent and the Beijing correspondent, um, Beijing bureau chief uh, and, and all that. And I've reported a lot on Asia. And I did a nonfiction book uh, that uh, from 2020, so a couple of years ago, uh, called Asian Waters, the struggle for the Indo-Pacific and the challenge to American power. And that looked a lot about the relationship, uh, that strategic relationship between Japan and the United States uh, and how China was encroaching on on the US. And we see this in the headlines every day now. Um, so I sort of had that swirling around my subconscious, as it were. So you've talked about how you know, it was a good hook for a story, but it also is, is sort of grounded in the reality you know, dating back to the 2011 executive order. Can you talk about how a even a sophisticated and powerful organized crime network would be able to cause political instability? I mean, when people think about organized crime in America, obviously the default is to just sort of think about the mafia, and they tend to think of it as not affecting them directly as opposed to you know, being afraid of being mugged or their home burglarized. So can you talk a little bit about the actual you know, threat underlying this part of the plot? Uh, yes, I mean, that's exactly right. You, you laid it out very well. I mean, in, in, in Japan, the organized crime or the Yakuza element is something uh, or a sort of culture in a way that has stepped in where the government uh, has failed or hasn't, you know, ha- hasn't got a presence. And it was knocked away after the end of the Pacific War when the, when the U.S. went in and, and basically democratized and completely reformed Japan. It, w- it was knocked back uh, and other institutions were brought in. Uh, but then uh, it, it creeped back in again uh, because there was a sort of neighborhood culture thing attached to it and 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 i think with all you know many sort of places with organized crime you you see this happening but one of the differences in japan is that the legislation against uh criminal activity is not that strong and isn't and what legislation there is isn't that well implemented uh so uh you know one of the people i spoke to said you know the the people there uh, they've got name cards they've got offices and those that have officially left a yakuza operation then starts up with something under another company but they're still the same people doing the same thing coupled with that is the um that, that sort of backdrop that that I think emerged during the Trump administration when Trump was was, was talking about isolationist policies and withdrawing uh, from South Korea and from Japan, uh, the, the U.S. forces and, and that sort of thing, sent a, a message to the whole country that it had to take more of a charge of its own destiny. 
And then from that came revisionist elements uh, that, that you hear have in Japan, you also have it in Germany, about, uh, you know, a new narrative about the Second World War. Did we actually lose that war? Uh, should we fight it again? Shouldn't we, uh, you know, Japan shouldn't have been humiliated? There's that sort of political grouping there that we've seen all over the world. So if you if you put all those elements, those are sort of the, 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 the reportage elements, actually, they can quite easily fit into a believable uh, thriller scenario. So if you were called upon by the uh, Biden State Department and asked whether there were significant reasons to be concerned about Japan as a loyal ally, uh, what would you say? I, I would say, uh, yes, they could. <laughs> I would say you, you, you can, you can uh, yes, a loyal ally at the moment, but be aware of the undercurrents. Um, and be aware of the undercurrents of how, um, the, you know, organized crime and these are huge multinational, transnational networks can move in to somewhere without people knowing it. Now, we've experienced this in, in, in Britain. And I, and I wrote a bit about this on in, in Man on Fire, the, the, the previous one on this, where there were some very questionable um, uh, uh, tactics and strategies used um, in order to manipulate the democratic process during our Brexit uh, referendum and everything. And the same allegations, as you're well aware, are, 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 being, uh, are being made in the United States constantly. Um, so what makes a, a country turn against itself or turn against what its values are or what it thinks it is? And, and I mean, we've had it in Britain it is there in the United States. And I thought, well, let's go to a place where we actually think this might not be happening and see if we can make a credible scenario where it could be happening. And, and I think the, uh, the FBI person that I spoke to, and, and it was a deep background uh, um, uh, conversation I had, but, uh, but I am permitted to say that I had a, had a conversation with the FBI. I, I think he would be saying, yeah, we've got to take more notice of this. So you've made the choice, and I apologize, I haven't read all the books in the series, so uh, I, I, I may be, be getting the fact wrong, but at least in this book, uh, Rake is an employee of a private security company. He's not working directly for the U.S. government. What does that choice enable you to do? In other words, that he works for a private company, what does that free him to do that he couldn't have done if he were working directly for a branch of U.S. intelligence or the military? Uh, it's slightly more blurred than that. And don't worry about not having read the books. I do a book show too. <laughs> and you can only really read the, 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 you know, some of it before you get the guest on. Uh, no, he is, uh, he, he is officially attached to the Alaska National Guard. Uh, and he has been throughout his career on secondment with other units. Uh, this particular operation that emerged out of Man on Fire, the previous book, uh, came because uh, the previous president had asked a particular private contractor uh, to look into the, it, the issue that, that, that emerges in this book. So he's in that blurred area between private contracting, but actually his line manager was the White House. And this is something, you know, that comes up quite a lot. So it's not a, a private company just going out and doing what a private company wants to do. It's a private company very much in, in the remit and having to report to U.S. agencies and the White House. And compared with your prior books in the series, was writing this harder or easier? Uh, it was the 
I think it was a little easier. I'll tell you the one that was, was hardest was the Man on Fire that I wrote during the pandemic when we were all locked up and not talking to anybody. And I found that my um, stimulant senses on sort of, you know, picking up a bit of dialogue or going on a, you know, a bus and seeing what someone looks like or taking in a bit of landscape, uh, that, that all went away. And I had to redo that several times to, 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 to sort of bring it out of itself. This one was, was uh, slightly more liberating, I think, because we were out of lockdown. And is your process for writing these books different than you have two other series? I know one with uh, a character called Kat Polinsky, another that's referred to as sort of a future history series. Um, is the process different for you? Uh, I think it's it, it's basically the same. All writers sort of fall into who they are and write how they write. Um, I'm uh, I'm easily distracted. Uh, so I have to accept that I'm not going to sit down for four hours uh, without checking an email or a text. But once you get that discipline in, I think that, 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 that you can plough through. I also do many, many drafts, so I don't uh, suffer from what, what colleagues call writer's block because I will just write something even if I know that it's not going to work so that the next day I have something that I can change. Um, I try to do a book every year or so, um, uh, you know, depending on what the publisher's contract is. And I'm also a morning guy. So I would write the fresh, fresh stuff from sort of, say, 6 to 10 in the morning whilst doing other things. And then I would revise that in the evening uh, because you've actually got a bit of, you know, hard copy to change around. So in terms of your lead in this series... Is the Reiko Zena of this book a different person from the start of the series? He's he's an evolving person. Uh, I I think when you're doing a, a series, you, when when you're doing a, a sort of hard action uh, thriller where you have to weave in the politics and the action and the location, uh, when I was doing Man on Ice, you could barely get to know him um, uh, because you had to describe. Uh, the, his home island where he comes from, which is right on the Russian border, and you get up in the morning and you look across and you see the big Diomede Russian military base island there. Um, you had to describe that. Uh, so each of the books, he sort of gets a little bit more backstory and a little bit more um, uh, character development and dimension there. But, but I think... I think uh, Ask, asking that makes me think about it, but coming from a very hostile, remote, pragmatic place where you have to live off your wits to survive from early childhood, he was not the sort of person that did much reflection. He would go and do what needed to be done uh, and then move on to the next task. So as the books develop and he becomes more of a character and also he becomes more international... Um, he does, I do give him a little more reflection and more analysis of of the politics of the day. Uh, And I think as as the series go on, he will be, you know, challenging presidents and challenging generals in a much more uh, confident way. Thank you. Finally, could you talk about thriller writers who you've read who've influenced you particularly? Yeah, I would say... um, 
uh, Alistair MacLean when I was a kid, um, uh, John le Carre, of course, Robert Ruark, who wrote beautifully about Africa. That was when I was, uh, uh, you know, growing through. And then running through now in the more modern day, uh, it, it, there was uh, Lee Child. And, uh, and right up to now, I was just discussing this with somebody, is that Alistair MacLean against Brad Thor or Mark Graney, who does The Grey Man, uh, Brad Thor, who also does a lot of uh, a, a lot of Arctic uh, uh, thrillers and, and that sort of thing. And Ken Follett has just done a fantastic uh, uh, international thriller uh, called Never, uh, sort of breaking away from his, his thing, which is really interesting. And I think going back to, um, uh, you know, the 1960s, early 70s, um, what you have now is you have much more detail. Uh, you have much more character development. You, of course, have much more stronger and independent-minded women, and you have much faster pace with shorter chapters. And whereas if you go back to the Alison McLean, Robert Ruark, James Michener was also a, 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 another one uh, of, of that uh, thing, uh, you, I think those authors had much more time to develop the landscape and the canvas on which they they were writing. Um, having said that, though, I think that um, with all of them, the, 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 when we talked about Japan and these sort of unknown crises and that and, and, and the, the other ones they've done, I, I feel, uh, you know, I, I feel quite passionate that you have to tell the story, but you have to give the reader something they might not know if they just read the headlines or just taught something in class. And this came to me when I read Leon Uris's Exodus years ago. And this was about the creation of Israel. And I thought, why hasn't anybody told me this? And this was a, a sort of fictional or factional account of, of the creation of Israel. And that has stuck with me ever since. Thank you, Humphrey. And thank you, listeners. The book, again, is Humphrey Hawksley's Ice Islands, published by Severn House. Please join us again soon for the next Litcast. <laughs>